Coming to you from the city of the weird. Exploring topics from the esoteric and unexplored to dimensions unknown. Shining a light of truth on the darkest corners of our reality. Welcome to the Curious Realm. Well, hello, everybody. Our guest in this segment, or in this episode, uh, is Lyle Blackburn. He is the author of Texas Bigfoot and a whole slew of other books, man. Um, He is probably hands down the go-to expert when it comes to Falk Monster, the stories of Falk Monster, uh, things like that. And we're talking with him tonight about the long history of cryptids in Texas. Uh, welcome back to the show, Lyle Blackburn. How are you doing, my friend? I'm all right. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely, man. Always great to sit and chat with you. I got a chance to sit and have dinner with you, actually, not too long ago, right after the uh, Lone Star Paracon. And it's always great to see you out there speaking all kinds of things. Uh, your wealth of knowledge with these stories is vast and you are an incredible storyteller you are as someone who sits in the back of rooms and watches presenters regularly like for my living lyle you you are one that holds the audience in the palm of your hand when you speak um you you take them on a voyage and on a journey and it's one of those you you may have bought the whole seat but you only need the edge um, it's, it's always great to see you talk and to see you talk with people afterward about these things. What was it that first brought you into the world of studying cryptozoology and cryptids? How did you, how did you first get that bug under your skin, so to speak? Well, it was actually a book, um, which seems appropriate, um, I was a big fan of movie monsters and, you know, monster movies and stuff as far back as I can remember. And when I was in third grade, uh, they used to pass around a thing and you could order books from Scholastic Reader. And they yes. have one called Strange But True. And uh, I ordered that. And <clears throat> the stories in there kind of range from just weird stuff, um, inexplicable old stories. But it also had stories of Bigfoot, Yeti and Loch Ness Monster. And that was the first time I had heard of Bigfoot and, mm. uh, you know, that I can recall. And now I'm reading about these sort of quote unquote monsters that you could possibly see in real life. And that was like, whoa, this is great. Um, I grew up, uh, I'm, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, been a Texan all my life, grew up hunting with my father. So we, we were often in wooded environments, you know, which was conducive to stories of Bigfoot. So, mm. That that's really where I I you know what sparked the interest, and then uh, somewhere after that, I saw a movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek in a drive-in, and that dramatized sightings of a Bigfoot-like creature in Southwest Arkansas, about three hours from where I lived. So once I saw that, I realized, wait, you know these these things aren't just in like Scotland or the Himalayas or even in the Pacific Northwest. We got creatures that could potentially be closer. So once I saw that and, and that has 
been something that um, has changed my entire life in a way after having written the books and everything. But, um, you know, that that was an early age. And ever since then, I've just loved these subjects. Well, and it, it it is fascinating. I love the way that it was scholastic readers that brought you into this. I, I also had that exact same book. And uh, my first book from them was about crystals. I still have the crystal it came with. Um, it's, it, it, it's awesome to see that, um, not only was that something that, cause you know, back, back in the day, there were, there were a lot of books. Like I still have my scary stories to tell in the dark. And that became one that was banned, not only from scholastic book fairs, but from schools in general. Um, and, and there were quite a few that hit the list from that stuff. So to know that, your parents weren't like, oh, no, no, you know, don't read that. That's too much for you, little kid. Um, but encourage that and saw that. Uh, that That's awesome. That is fantastic to know. And the fact that it has led you down this entire path of life um, is truly a testament to the fact of in, encourage your children. You know, uh, it's it's awesome. That is that is great. Now, when it comes to. uh legends of texas and especially bigfoot things like that we we have a panoply of critters and cryptids crawling around this state um what what are some of the reports that you get coming in regularly lyle well you know i think you know when people think about texas bigfoot is not what they're going to think of first obviously um you know oil tycoons and Dallas Cowboys and other things we're known for. But believe it or not, there is a very long and intriguing and credible history of Bigfoot encounters in Texas. Now, uh, you know, these span from sort of uh, older stories from the 1800s, some new, you know, wild stories in newspapers back then all the way going forward, especially in the mid 1900s when, um, you know, things were recorded more or newspapers were covering mm. these uh, topics. Um, so what I get today often are just um, reports mostly from the eastern third of the state, which is known as the Piney Woods. And that's, you know, that's that's where if you, if you go there, you can see, well, yes, this looks like a Bigfoot environment, whereas most people think of Texas as sort of this open ranch cowboy landscape. And yeah, it yeah. surely is in the central portion and even gets into an arid uh, desert like, you know, in El Paso. But the reports I get are of a creature that, you know, is, is ubiquitous to Bigfoot descriptions, you know, something that stands – you know, between six and eight feet tall, is covered in hair, it walks upright on two legs, it has a foot impression with five toes, it looks something between an ape-like creature and something more like a hominid that, that has, you know, uh, aspects of, of our own humanity. And just a mix of those things, um, as we do with many Bigfoot reports, and these are from a range of people. These aren't just, uh, you know, wild hillbillies or yeah. This can be doctors and lawyers and and especially people who live in rural environments, ranchers and people who own property 
uh, near the woods, obviously, that's where the encounters are. So those are the kind of things coming in. And even, you know, I can think of two or three where there were multiple witnesses who saw, you know, however briefly or whatever, the, a creature that we would call Bigfoot. Wow. Wow. And, and you know, it the, it is interesting because Texas, as opposed to a lot of states, uh, does have a ranging topology we have we have just about every form of land mass known to man except for like frozen tundra and, and rainforest you know like we we have big thicket over in the east we have hill country we have plains we have prairies we have we have desert high desert um all kinds of things so uh and and it's interesting to see that these sightings range across all of those. Right. And, and that's the thing. I mean, while the majority of them are, are in the, you know, Eastern portion, piney woods, yeah. some of the swampy regions, of course, where we border with Louisiana, the, you know, the Bayou state. So it, it does get swampy out there in the East. Those kind of environments, are where most of it is, but you do have a, a good history, especially like in the 1960s and 70s in the central portion, like mm. from, uh, yeah, from from like west of Fort Worth down through San Antonio. And, you know, populations have grown since then. So in some of those areas, you would look at them now and say, well, how could a Bigfoot be around here? There's a you know, there's a Walmart or whatever, but, um, back in those days, you know, there was nothing. So you yeah. would get these reports from the central portions. And even there's been some really intriguing ones, even up from up in the panhandle near Amarillo, which is very wide open. I mean, there's uh -huh. not a lot of place to quote unquote hide if you're a large creature. Um, but there's still credible accounts there. And there's even some around El Paso, which is obviously a, a, a totally different environment than East Texas. So yeah. you, you, you do get the reports across these ranges um, with some of those that are in the most unlikely terrain for Bigfoot where you just scratch your head, but you say, wow, this is, <laughs> this is really incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, especially when you're talking big thicket area, things like that over, over in East Texas, there have been, uh, sightings there for a long long time and and uh ev even going into louisiana going into i mean right up in the four corners region is where falc arkansas is you know so uh when what what do you make of the recent reports of black bear activity in that area spiking uh, reports of black bears returning to the area, things like that. Um, could that be something that is possibly influencing recent sightings or uh, have there been an uptick of sightings recently in the area like there have been with black bears? Um, it's hard to say if there's been an uptick or a mm -hmm. trend because people report sightings to all different places, you know, different if they know me personally or if they, they direct their friend or, you know, report it to something like the uh, North, North American, American Wood Ape Conservancy. 
So it's hard to track track it a lot <clears throat> because there's no central um, place where they're yeah. reported. But, you know, black bears – and that's the thing. People say, well, Bigfoots can't exist around here or whatever. But if black bears can, then surely Bigfoot can. I mean, it's a comparable requirements that those yeah. – you know, uh, creatures or would need to survive. So if we do have bat black bear sightings, and certainly there has been more because we've been conscious a bit about um, <clears throat> the habitat and to reinvigorate these species. Yeah. Um, I did get a, a photo from Falk. It's been, it may have been a couple of years, but somebody got a photo of a pretty large black bear up there in Falk, Arkansas. Mm. And of course, it wasn't sent to me saying it was a Bigfoot. It was just simply, hey, there's a bear. Yeah. And I thought, there you go. I mean, there's bears up there and occasionally they're seen. And yeah. like you mentioned, that sort of four corners or, or, or the where the states come together, like Louisiana and, and Arkansas and Texas called the Arklatex, that that is just pretty much kind of one big area where there's a lot of piney woods. So, you know, just because the creature's seen near Falk and we call it the Falk monster or Boggy Creek monster, and then, you know, a Texas yeah. Bigfoot, we call it something else, the Sabine thing or whatever, it could very well be the same type creatures and just have a different vernacular a yeah. regional name is what we call it. But, but as you can see, like it's just a lot of forestry out there and those things can roam around just like bears, you know, you may, they could probably tag a bear and track it wandering around from Louisiana to Texas. And it would be presumably the same for Bigfoot. Well, and I, I would assume that, you know, and I, that would be a, a, fair to safe assumption, you know, for, for any wildlife biologist to consider whenever you're thinking of a, a large bipedal primate, you know, uh, an animal approximately the size of a, a bear would need the same amount of water, the same amount of grazing, the same amount of protein, um, things like that. So yeah, absolutely. The, the fact that, um, it makes for good bear habitat makes perfect sense that it would, make for good habitat for said cryptid, you know, and it, that is, that is one of the things that I, I think people are all too reticent to think about sometimes Lyle, um, whenever they go out and, uh, we, we tend to be very charged and excited whenever we go out to investigate things, whenever we go out to set up trail cams, look at evidence, things like that. And, um, I I always took it kind of like kind of like watching football footage or looking at footage of my band. You know, it was like I, I never looked at that the same night. Um, I'd I'd rip myself apart if I <laughs> like. You give yourself two or three days to come to come at it with fresh ears. You know, and kind of kind of the same way. Uh, I see quite a few people who were out in the field and who do field work looking at things either out in the field or as soon as they get back, instead of giving it time to come back and look at things with a fresh pair of eyes to kind of let the experience settle and go away a little bit, you know? Um, and yeah, I think that if we step back and look at things, of course, much like any phenomena, um, 
there are numerous things that can explain the phenomena. Otherwise, um, everything would be the phenomena. It wouldn't be a phenomena anymore, you know? Um, now, with with other cryptids in the state, especially things like we have our own Boggy Creek right here outside of Austin, um, just just on the east side where uh, sightings of Dogman, things like that have happened. Um, what do you what do you make of the the Dogman story and and the uh, the sightings of that creature that have happened here in the Lone Star State? Well, I mean, it's intriguing. Uh, anything that would resemble a werewolf is obviously uh, uh, on the edge of even more scary, perhaps, yeah. than a Bigfoot. And I've noticed in the last five years or so, there's been a real increase of dogman sightings, uh, a proliferation mm. of those kind of stories. Um and and perhaps that's people coming forward who had these sightings sure. previously and didn't know what to do with them or they weren't acceptable. Um, but I, I do get a lot more, and and there are quite a number of these dogman sightings in Texas, even going back to really old stories like the so-called Converse Werewolf, which is a a bit of a story. Uh, a word of mouth story that's been passed along since the late 1800s, but that was a story about a rancher who sent his son out to hunt down in Con near Converse, which is close to San Antonio, and he was killed by this bipedal wolf-looking thing, this huge animal. And uh, going forward, you know, I've interviewed people personally who have had encounters with with things that for lack of a better term, resemble a werewolf. Um, and of course, if we look at Louisiana, there is a long history of a creature called the Rougarou, which is basically a yeah. werewolf-like creature, the sort of sort of a boogeyman type thing, uh, somewhere between folklore and cryptid. But um, <clears throat> you know, the the interesting thing about these. Uh, you know, proliferation of reports is you can start comparing and contrasting these. Um, yeah. Recently, there was one at Lake Texoma where three guys saw a a huge, you know, sort of wolf-like thing with black hair that they said they could hear its bones even cracking as it stood up, and it. Oh wow. And they were out there cat doing catfishing, and and. <laughs> This thing came at them and even came into the water and they jetted off in the boat. And uh, that, that report came from a couple of different sources. And I didn't interview the guy personally, but two guys that I know. Yeah. Um, so there's always something. And that's really recent. Um, wow. As, as far as these dogman encounters. And, you know, what is what is really I'm 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 Cajun by upbringing, you know, half Cajun uh, and uh Rougarou's there there are all kinds of interesting stories swamp tales uh folklore but there there is something about the DFW area I don't know what it is but they, I mean just about every cryptid that is in Texas is right there in that area you know um, even, even moving on to, to the, uh, the accounts of Goatman, 
you know, yeah. uh, right there, right there, up around, up around Lake Worth. Um, what, what is, what is Goatman all about for the audience out there who is not aware of Goatman? Well, Goat, Goatman, that, that's one that definitely straddles the line between urban tales, rural tales, if you will, um, urban legend and cryptid. And there was a case that was in the summer of 1969 up near Lake Worth, which is outside of Fort Worth, Texas. And people uh, that summer saw what they described as some thing that stood up on two legs. It was covered in white hair and it looked something like kind of like a Bigfoot, but some said it had horns or scaly skin or something. And it falls into that goat man category. And that's near the what you got displayed there. The old Alton Bridge is uh, not far from Lake Worth where there's another sort of a goat man tale. But you, you always have bridges and you have a goat man associated with it. But in the case of Lake Worth, um, people saw this. And in one instance, up to 30 to 40 witnesses saw this thing come up on a ridge and throw a tire. And all this was covered in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram back in the day. But I've interviewed people who were present at that time, and they described the creature in various ways, some like a Bigfoot. Um, This came to the attention of the police. The first incident was some couples that were parked down um, near Lake Worth one evening, kind of a lover's lane type thing. And this thing came out of the woods and uh, there was a woman sitting in a convertible and it tried to pull her out of the car and her husband saw it and came up and actually kind of tussled with this thing or fought with it. He described it as a goat man um, for lack of a better term. And that, that so that's kind of what has stuck and, you have other famous goat men like the Maryland goat man, other cryptids that are these sort of, you know, goat man things. But a lot of it is just bridges with tales of ubiquitous tales of um, goat men that people don't necessarily report like a cryptid. Now, there's no ongoing reports. It's just a tale that that involved. <laughs> Uh, weird stuff and, and go yeah. men and the public monster in Kentucky is another one where there's a long bridge there and there's tales of, of a goat man. Uh, so I don't know what, what the connection is. There's, there's bridges and there's goat men, but that is a definite theme. No, no. I mean, most definitely um, when you're, when you're talking paranormal things like that, uh, bridges, bridges play a lot into that. Um, and I guess a lot of that probably traces back to the whole idea of, you know, uh, ghosts can't cross running water, you know, um, things like that. Uh, even, even back to, you know, Washington Irving and, and Sleepy Hollow, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of once you got to the bridge, you were okay. You were safe. You know, it stopped even outside of Mamu, Louisiana, where, uh, where my family's from. Uh, there is there is a bridge where supposedly a sol- a headless soldier on a horse. Um, I remember going out. We got stuck in the mud one night going out and searching for that thing. Uh, 
The crazy things you do out in Mamu, Louisiana, two in the morning, you know, um, but but it, it it is interesting to see how many of these paranormal things revolve around bridges and and occur around bridges, even even when you're talking Mothman, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's quite a bit of paranormal and paranormal stories based around bridges. Um, but. It's, yeah, and you know, I think you can you can draw a line between some of the old folklore tales mm. and and modern day cryptid sightings and coincidental or or however you want to justify it. Yeah, you do have that proliferation of yeah. these kind of spooky things going on with bridges. It's just that theme, and you know, yeah. you could you know, I could probably write a book on uh, you know. scary tales from bridges or something because there's that many you could probably write a book lyle quite literally on the tropes that carry forth from you know generation to generation culturally despite borders you know and like the the whole idea of dogman and especially quite a few of the sightings revolving around germanic neighborhoods germanic areas places settled by uh, German settlers, things like that. Um, even, even Rougarou make, makes a whole lot of sense to me as a Cajun because the, the Cajun language is unchanged fifth century court French, you know? So the idea that their stories came over with them the same way that their language did, you know, and came down with them and that they maintained that the same way that they maintained, a a language unchanged since the 15th century um that that makes a lot of sense to me um now when you get into bigfoot that's a little bit different because sure there are stories of you know wild men of the woods things like that uh in germany all over all over britain um those stories go into the native american cultures here as well um, not so much, not so much dog man. Um, they have stories of skinwalker, you know, things like that. Uh, but that is, that is, I believe different than dog man. That is different than, uh, your, your average lycanthrope, uh, right. so to speak. Yeah. And you're right. And I, I think there's like what, what you may describe a creature as, or, <clears throat> You know, a lot of these sightings, if it's a sighting, it could be very brief. You're going to be drawing perhaps a bias from your perspective, your cultural perspective. So whether you see a a big, white, hairy thing in the woods and you call it a goat man or you say, well, it was a Bigfoot with white hair. Some of that is going to, you know, come from your own perspective. culture and and what you've been raised and and how your mind wants to classify that. And that doesn't mean you're not seeing some physical thing running through there. It's just how, how do you classify and describe it? And, you know, I think you're right with Rougarou, you know, the French came here and they had tales of the Lougarou, which was, you know, lycanthrope, like uh, man wolf, which the Cajuns, you know, it just turns into the Rougarou. Yeah. You could trace that sort of origin. And so, you know, you, 
heck, they could be seeing a, a skunk ape in the swamp and it looks kind of apish, but if their grandmothers told them a hundred times, watch out for the Rougarou in the woods, they see a big old hairy thing. Yeah. I saw a Rougarou. Yeah. So it didn't mean they didn't see some unknown creature. It's just how they frame it. And, and that's an interesting, like you say, you can just, you could just look at it from all these ways or write books on tropes yeah. or themes like bridges or railroads or, um, trace Dogman through French stories all the way yeah. to modern day sightings. Absolutely, any number of things. Well, and and even the idea of you know chupacabra here in Texas, prime example. Um, most people are familiar with the uh, you know the the late eighties nineties. Creature that came and the reports that came out of uh, uh, where was that? My Puerto Lord. Rico. Puerto Rico. Yeah, nineteen ninety five. Um, thank yeah. you. Um, and and you know, much more alien like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, large creature spines coming out of its back, red eyes, fangs. Um, and we also have a chupacabra here in Texas. Uh, the the Texas blue dog. That that is out and sightings regularly. There were there was just a a run of sightings that just recently happened. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, once again up around the DFW area. But uh, yeah, that even even that is different here than sightings elsewhere. Yeah, that that's one that sort of got confusing because. The the name Chupacabra originates from those incidents starting in around 1995 in Puerto Rico where livestock was turning up dead in mass numbers and it appeared that their blood had been drained. So um, the, the name translates in Spanish to goat sucker, and that's yeah. because a lot of these livestock were goats. And <clears> – <throat> People who claim to have seen some strange creature around that time in Puerto Rico described it like you said. It was more like it was bipedal, stood maybe three or four feet tall, had spikes down its back, large alien-looking eyes. Something quite different than what happened in the early 2000s when there were sighting reports in the American Southwest, Texas included, of this sort of – quadrupedal dog-like thing that was hairless and looked weird and had pointy teeth and, and all that as people, people tend, tend to think of that when they think of a chupacabra and the media just called it a chupacabra for whatever reason. Yeah. Even though that's different than what was originally described. And it even gets more complicated because if you go back in the 1970s in Puerto Rico, there was a creature called the mocha vampire, which is pretty much the, the same thing. It was killing livestock. Um, but 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 for our purposes here in Texas, there is some sort of a canid animal that is not typical um, of known canids in yeah. People explain this away, and certainly this is in some cases where the like a coyote contracts scarcoptic mange, which makes it lose its hair and it becomes scaly and, and creepy looking. 
Um, and that explains some of these, but some of the um, specimens, and there are specimens, you can see Phyllis yes. Canyon holding one right there in that photo, yep. um, have been tested, and some have been come back as domestic dogs, some as coyote, but some have come back having traces of like Mexican wolf or red wolf, and it seems to be kind of a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, and and specifically uh, Mexican holo, the 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 hairless dog, like what is what is featured in uh in oh my god, it just left my head the the Disney movie, um, <laughs> but yeah, and, uh, and and there there are breeds of dogs like that in Mexico that are right up against the border, stuff like that. I've got. Actually, a bone from uh, one of King Gerhardt's uh, chupacabra investigations. Um, not a chupacabra bone, uh, actually a dog bone. But um, that was one of them that, you know, came right after Phyllis's case uh, where somebody had a had a body and they had buried it. And, you know, he he was called out to investigate and. Uh, it, it is interesting. And I think, I think the case was, uh, Phyllis had had chickens popping up dead that had been exsanguinated. Um, and that, I think that is how the chupacabra got, got tied specifically to that critter that she is holding. Um, and how those two names, because they were not, the stories weren't concurrent, but they were pretty close in, in year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, and yeah, to, to know that even that is out there. And I, I love King Gerhardt's, um, concept that, you know, it, it may be a genetic mutation due to, you know, environmental things, specifically petrochemical, uh, byproduct, stuff like that in water supplies. Um, really, really interesting take on that that could very well explain something that, uh, Pops up regularly, like every every few months, um, you'll hear about a sighting of one here in Texas. It's it's pretty wild uh, if you watch the news and things like that for it. How how regularly those sightings occur and are reported? Yeah, yeah, they're they're a lot more frequent because you know these things uh, tend to be less weary than a Bigfoot, I guess. Um, you know they're they turn up dead. They get shot. One of them got poisoned, stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, that, that's the thing. It's like a cryptid doesn't have to be something that's just completely like, you know, the Yeti, the abominable snowman or or a werewolf. If, if you know, we have a canid here of, of any sort that's mutating, that's a, a hybrid we're not aware of, that's still – an undocumented species, you know, and so yeah. you know, that falls into cryptozoology and it's still interesting, even if it doesn't turn out to be a seven foot monster, if we identify something that was previously unknown in the animal kingdom, boom, that's a cryptid. So, so the jury's still out here on Chupacabra because there's been, like I said, a, a variety of specimens and they're not all testing coming out you know they're not all just coyote or they're not all this there's yeah. some some bizarre stuff in there so we just need more specimens to continue the testing and to try to determine if if this is just a diseased animal or if it is something that's 
that's mutating and turning into something completely different. Well, and, and 100%, 100%. It is, it is a, a data set issue, you know, and, and gathering more data, getting more data from the field. Now that is not to encourage people to do like, like the good folks in East Texas just did with the, with the one at their house where I think they, they ended up using like animal poison or something like that. Cause the thing had been living under their house, what have you. Um, it's like, I, I am not, um, I am not one to say let's, I, I, while I, while I think that especially when it comes to Bigfoot things like that, Lyle, I think, I think the corpse will be what, what sells it. Sadly, oh, sure. um, yeah. I and am not a proponent point. of go out and hunt them, you know, um, and I know that there was a guy years ago uh, here in the hill country that used to do like hill country Bigfoot expeditions that was like, no, no, we are going out and we're we are stalking a Bigfoot like we're we're here for business and I'll take you out and we will we will hunt and stalk a Bigfoot. Um. So yeah, yeah, there there yeah, there's are... been a number of uh, individuals and organizations that have tried to harvest a specimen, yeah. and I get it because if you're ever going to prove it, it's videos and all this stuff is not photos. I mean, look, AI has just really messed it up. But even before that, you can't make anything out of a photo. But yeah. so far, no one has been successful, even when they mount a campaign yeah. to harvest a creature so so bigfoot reigns supreme as far as being able to evade us um unscrupulous humans and you're right i mean i don't advocate going out to harvest anything but if the if a dead body you know somebody hits one accidentally with a car or whatever and we get a body well it is what it is and i think that's the only way that we're going to get any conclusive answer because, you know, there's just as much evidence to say that it it exists and just as much skeptical thinking to say, well, this seems impossible, but that doesn't mean it doesn't. We just have to have that in this day and age. We need, in order to scientifically verify that we're going to need a specimen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and granted, you know, the, the, the idea is to, well, Keep studying the anomalies because there are numerous anomalies out there. There, there are numerous, you know, uh, numerous points of evidence from dermal ridges on casts that are taken to handprints on on windows to oil alleles from handprints on windows. Um, all kinds of new forensic techniques being used to examine things. Uh, so, I I think that within the next five, 10 years, we will probably have at at the very least the, the anomalous record of, of genetic material where it's like, we don't know what this is. We don't know what this is. Technology is advancing eDNA and stuff like that, where we don't even need something present to identify. Well, at least unknown DNA. We don't have a type specimen, but but yeah, these things are closing in, you know, thermal imaging and stuff. And uh, there's a lot of game cameras and, and things like that. So if they're out there, um, you know, they can, of course, avoid game cameras. I mean, oh, ki- yeah. alpha male coyotes have been proven to actively avoid 
the cameras based on whatever. It's it's it it's not that hard. I mean, even if you put a decenter on it, the one thing I tell people all the time is don't forget that thing's being triggered by an infrared light. Mm-hmm. It's being triggered by an infrared beam. So any animal that can see into the near infrared, you know, like many of those infrared lights, like I I don't do I have a remote? I do. Let's see if it'll work on my camera right here. Sometimes if you take a remote and point it at a camera and hit it, the filter on it is just enough that you'll actively see the infrared light. Yeah. Turn on 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 the remote control. So no no different if that animal is able to see and navigate at night, that means that it is probably seeing that infrared light the same way it's seeing a flashlight during the day, during the night. You yeah, know? absolutely. So you put, you put something avoid, like that out in the woods. It I would mean, be those avoiding animals. the light. It would see the light whether you see it or not. <laughs> yeah, and they can be avoided, especially if we presume that something like Bigfoot uh, has more intelligent than a average Wolf. coyote. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, th- those kind of things, you know, our technology is is sort of enabling us to solve mysteries potentially, but but at the same time, the technology itself is something that is fallible. It's yeah. you know, animals can detect it and other things. So it just doesn't mean that we're going to automatically all of a sudden get the proof we're looking at. Yeah. Um, it still it still remains a mystery, and I think ultimately that's whether we prove any of these or not, at least for me, I mean, I'm all about the mystery, um, you know, the, the possibility and just the, just the fact that people report seeing this stuff in modern times, this isn't yeah. some old folklore story, you know, and yeah. there may be, we can trace back, you know, a werewolf story or whatever to 1800s, but I can talk to a witness who claims they saw it, you know, a month ago. And, and that's, what's intriguing this phenomenon yeah. of people, seeing these things and in the trying to gather that data and trying to make sense of it, you know, is, is is this really out there? And yeah. And, and what is, what is behind it? Well, and, and that's just it, Lyle. And that, that is why I say when it comes to things, especially like the folk monster stuff like that, like you, you are the, the resident expert, man. Like if anybody's doing a talking head show and Falk monster comes up, they they have they are remiss if they have not contacted you, my friend, uh, because you you are the go to person that anybody comes into the Falk Mart Monster Mart anywhere else in town and says, man, I saw this thing out on the bayou. They immediately say you need to get a hold of Lyle Blackburn like you. You are the go to source for people in their accounts uh, for things like that. And uh, you take in numerous accounts a year from that location alone, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually all accounts are funneled to me and I've, you know, searched them all down from, you know, old newspapers and whatever sources. And, you know, in my Boggy Creek casebook, for example, you know, um, where that, that in a narrow, smaller location, I can look at trends and things like that because I typically, yeah, that right there, I typically get those reports. Like you say, I've become known as the, the go-to guy or whatever on, on Boggy Creek. So that uh, is, is something that I do have a 
a grip and a, and, and have the scope of because, um, you know, even if somebody reports to somebody else, it eventually gets to me and I log it into the, into my database of sightings. Um, so, you know, that's, that's great. And that, that's where I feel I contribute a lot to the, to the greater body of Bigfoot studies is by uh, meticulously researching and cataloging sightings of the Boggy Creek monster, which, um, so many people know of because of the movie Legend of Boggy Creek. I mean, yeah. most Bigfoot enthusiasts over a certain age, every single one of them will say, you know, I've seen the movie or most of them will say that's what got me into it, that yeah. the Patterson Gimlin film or whatever. Um, so I felt this is something worthy of documenting um, for, I mean, Bigfoot research and, and Arkansas – uh, <laughs> itself. I mean, it's a big story. Yeah. I mean, you go somewhere and you say you're from Falk or anything to do with Falk, Arkansas, I'll be like, oh, the legend of Boggy Creek. I mean, this is, and I've done, I've helped Arkansas travel websites and other yeah. things like that that have included this. Arkansas Mysteries, it is something that is worthy of preser preserving these stories and to continue to, to track these sightings because of of just how well known it is. Well, well, and and it's the fact of it is it's it's local fare, man. It's 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 quite literally localized history, and mm -hmm. and without that, without without the stories, without those things, um, you lose part of the tradition of an area. You know, um, even as a Cajun, I can tell you that. And the the beautiful thing is that you know you've you've worked in the past with people like Texas Parks and Wildlife. You're actively working with Texas Parks and Wildlife right now on a project, yeah. Oh yes, that's that's something good to bring up. Um, yeah, yeah. I've been working with a guy who works for Texas Parks and Wildlife, and he's been developing some shows for their. Um, their series that airs on uh, public broadcast um, PBS yeah. and they gave him the green light to do some, to look into some cryptids, uh, especially Bigfoot, Too you know, cool. because it's, it's a popular subject and it does connect with the outdoors. I mean, people go in the outdoors to look for Bigfoot. 100%. So it was really cool that, that he was allowed to do this. So this, this is going to air in March on the various PBS channels. Uh, um, I don't have an exact air date because it, yeah. it just kind of will air, but it, it features me quite extensively Too talking cool. about what we're talking about here, Texas cryptids, yeah. Bigfoot, Legend of Boggy Creek, and super cool that because they're, they're just looking at it from an unbiased point. They're not trying to spin it or make fun of it or anything else. It's just like, here, the, people report this stuff. It, it's ongoing. We love our outdoors here in Texas. And, you know, you may see all sorts of amazing plants and animals. And, oh, by the way, you might also you see might. a Bigfoot. Yeah. Because yeah. of all this. So, yeah, that's that's a really cool thing. And if people follow my pages, I'll be able to uh, advance some dates as to when that will air. It's going to be cool. Well, and, uh, you know, it's it's really neat. Uh, number one, it, in, it introduces a whole new, a whole new realm of people to the topic and to the idea. It introduces a whole new generation to the idea. And much like we recently spoke about with Chester Moore, 
when we had him on, uh, we were we were discussing the idea of wildlife conservation in cryptozoology. You want to you want to do something for cryptozoology, people get out there and start preserving the wildlife areas that these things live in. Go out and preserve their habitat. You know, like that, that is the most important thing you can do is make sure that, you know, the preserves in East Texas, things like that stay preserved, that they stay wild, that they do not get developed. Because if this and that is that is probably the most future looking and beautiful thing that our mutual friend Craig Woolheater has recently done um, was the Bigfoot conservation that he just did right there in Jefferson, Texas. Not only has he had Jefferson, Texas decreed the the Bigfoot capital of Texas, but there is now a Bigfoot conservation action going on there where it's like, if if we have these sightings here, we need to take care of our wildlife. We need to take care of our wild areas and we need to conserve their their localized habitat to make sure that they stay here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even if uh, we don't do it for the bears and every other thing that exists, you could probably tell a kid, you know, like, well, we got to preserve the outdoors because of this one rare plant. They may go, hey, we Bigfoot lives here. Yeah, this is his home. We should stand up to preserving our wild environments, that kid's probably like, you know, you're right. Yeah. Where would Bigfoot go? It's like, it's a, just another tool to advance um, the appreciation for our wild areas to young people. And like I said, I mean, even if, <laughs> even if you don't care about anything else, if you love Bigfoot, you would surely want to preserve those environments, which are super important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Otherwise, otherwise we will end up, Lyle, uh, the same way that Colorado communities do with, you know, cougars encroaching on neighborhoods um, with uh, with with bears walking in the backyard. You know, like, could you imagine coming out one night to put your trash out and Bigfoot's rooting through your garbage, you know, because because he no longer has a wild area. He no longer My family has-, has a cabin in northern New Mexico, and I was sitting there one day. I mean, it's, a, it's like a cabin home, and it backs up to the Carson National Forest. So I turned over one day, looked out the back window, and there was this huge cinnamon-colored bear just looking in. I mean, this thing was huge. <laughs> just curious. Like, hey, what the heck's going on in here? Yeah, it was just yeah. like that. It was like, oh, my God. I mean yeah. – it, it was shocking, you know. Well, it's a good thing I wasn't out there, or whatever, it, uh, pulling weeds in the backyard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. That you didn't just casually walk out, you know. And and that's just it, though. We we have these situations regularly where humanity and wildlife are coming to a point of clash, you know, where there's coyotes roaming neighborhoods, things like that, because we have encroached upon their area. Um, and they have no reason to go further into the woods, uh, because we provided them with ready food right here, you know? So, um, man, could you imagine it getting to a point where like, you know, much like there's like seasonal bear alerts in neighborhoods, like Sasquatch alert, folks, be careful. It's Sasquatch season, you know, uh, (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome. Because we've we've totally overtaken all of the woods, and they have nowhere else to go now. Um, 
but but that is something in all sincerity to be considered. The fact of if there is a large bipedal primate roaming the woods of North America, which I am prone to believe, um, just just from the evidence and accounts that I have been presented, the things that I have researched, uh, more things point to yes than to no. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that's, that's just where I lie with it. Whether or not there is something else out there that is using the tropes of our mind to travel through portals, appear, disappear, what have you, that's a different thing. But I am, I am firmly convinced that there is a bipedal hominid that is an actual biological thing living in the forests of North America. Uh, that is, that is just where I'm at with it. So, um, Lyle, I want to thank you for the time, dude. It is always great having a conversation with you sitting back. Uh, it was great to see you at the recent conference to go out, have dinner afterward, things like that. Let everybody know where they can go to keep up with your work, where they can go to uh, stay tuned in for the upcoming series. I know you've got a new book in the works, which is really exciting. Um, so I will be ear to ear to the ground waiting for that announcement because it's exciting and I can't wait. Um, let everybody know where they can go to creepily stalk you and all of your work online, my friend. Well, uh, the best place to start your stalking would be my website at lyleblackburn.com. And that gives you, uh, an overview of all the things I've, uh, worked on and released all my books. Um, you can get your books there from my online store, but all my books are available on Amazon as well. Um, and I'm a, on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, X, and so forth. So you'll find all those links there at lyleblackburn.com or just look me up on Facebook and follow me for more intriguing tales of creatures. Awesome. Lyle. Thank you so much as always. Once again, it is a pleasure talking with you and your wealth of knowledge in these areas is absolutely awesome. Um, Thank you so much for all the work that you do and for all the research that you do into uh, these amazing things. I can't wait to see what comes next from you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy it. Absolutely. Hold the line real quick while we close things out. While you are online checking out everything from Lyle Blackburn, folks, make sure to stop on by Curious Realm. CuriousRealm.com is where you can find all the episodes. That's where you can like, follow, subscribe. That's where you can also uh, go and visit our store where you can get all of the books and videos from our guests like Lyle as well as our merch, everything else. And, of course, do not forget... Curious Realm is now officially available on Roku, everybody. If you have a Roku TV, Roku device, uh, search Curious Realm and download our free app. Not only do you get all of the episodes, but you also get an amazing library of binaural beat meditation music. So stop on by. Check that out, everybody. When we come back from this commercial break, we will be joined by our good friend and researcher, uh, Kathleen Marden, we will be talking about a lifetime as an experiencer, what it was like growing up as the niece of Betty and Barney Hill, as well as what her own experience was like being taken aboard a craft and how that led her into a lifetime of research into the world of UFOs, UAPs, as well as 
helping experiencers find their way after. We'll be right back after this, folks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back from that commercial break. Thank you so much to all of our sponsors, especially WebWorks Wireless. They have been working with us since the beginnings of Curious Realm to provide our website live streams. If you are looking for uh, live streaming from any location, if you are looking for website coverage for your remote location, like a camp, cabin, things like that, stop on by and check out WebWorks Wireless, folks. They're your source for no throttling, no credit check, internet, pretty much anywhere you have cell phone signal. Our guest in this segment is the amazing Kathleen Martin. She is the author of Forbidden Knowledge, Volume 1, as well as the new second edition of Forbidden Knowledge. Uh, she is also um, one of the founding members of the experiencer resource team at MUFON. Welcome back to the show, Kathleen Martin. How are you today? Thank you very much. I'm doing well, thank you. I always love our conversations, Kathleen, uh, because you you are somebody who uh, is a prime example of how um, experience revolves around experiencers. Um, and it, it's very interesting to see how you yourself have had your own experiences throughout your life, uh, even even similar to those of your aunt and uncle Betty and Barney Hill. And the fact that these things led you to a, a greater calling within the realm of ufology and really getting to the root of the world of the experiencer um, is a beautiful thing to me. Uh, so thank you so much for all of your work with experiencers, folks like Sev Talk, um, and helping found things like the experiencer resource team. Uh, I consider that to be one of the, one of the greatest endeavors of MUFON right now. And, and really whenever I hear people like, oh, you know, they're just nuts and bolts. I'm like, I don't think you're aware of the ERT and the work that they're doing. So um, let's get into your experiences and what led you to write Forbidden Knowledge, uh, Volume 1 and 2, and, and what's led you down your current road of research and work, Kathleen? Well, I have to tell you that my aunt and uncle's abduction in 1961 had a major impact on me. I was 13 years old. And they were very close family members. In fact, when I was in college, I lived with Betty. And this was after Barney's death. So uh, that really got me started and interested. And uh, I met most of the investigators on their case back in that time frame. Uh, they always shared their experiences with the family. And I knew that there were uh, a lot of craft being seen in my section of New Hampshire in the time frame when Betty was working with a team of scientists to attempt to call in craft. 
And, you know, I'm wondering if maybe she was the first CE5 person. Yeah. I don't know if she was or not. But she, way back in the 1960s, was working on that and calling in craft. And uh, one landed on my grandparents' farm. And uh, there were two witnesses to it. And what wow. I thought that I would never tell to anyone is that my mother and I recalled finding ourselves on craft that night. Wow. And, you know, it was terrifying. Uh, it really had a huge emotional impact on me. But when I tried to talk about it, my mother would always say, they don't want you to talk about this. Hmm. And so I just clammed up. I held it within. And, uh, you know, it, it had an impact on my ability to sleep, uh, on my general outlook. There was so much fear involved, yet the inability to really discuss it until Dr. James Harder visited my Aunt Betty. And this was in the mid-1970s, I believe. And he was studying my family because Betty and Barney were not the only people who had these types of occurrences in their lives. My mother did as well, but we were sworn to secrecy. When Dr. Harder investigated this and, and uh, hypnotized me and my mother, I think he hypnotized my grandmother. I know he hypnotized my Aunt Betty because I have an audio recording of it. Oh, wow. And uh, so we insisted upon the strictest of confidentiality. I don't even know if he ever wrote reports on mm. the work that he did with us. Um, we were so uh, in, interested in remaining confidential because, you know, you probably know, just about everybody knows that uh, Betty was under attack for the yeah. rest of her life. Yeah. And after uh, she didn't reveal this information, it was revealed in a Boston newspaper. Uh, and that story went around the world. I have yeah. actually a copy of an article, the same article published in Australia. Wow. So <laughs> it, this was not a little thing. It had a huge impact on my aunt and uncle's lives um, and their professions. And uh, they then finally did come out and admit what happened. But the, we decided, the rest of the family, that we would not speak about our own events. Interesting. Because we didn't want to spend our lives uh, being scrutinized and, yeah. and uh, having false information disseminated to the public about us. And that is what happens. And I guess it's what happened to me. Um, I decided when I was 70 years old that I really didn't have much to lose. So uh, yeah. I was well known in the UFO field. That was my chosen field. I'm an author. And um, 
I wrote the first edition of Forbidden Knowledge to uh, as a memoir of my life um, and my experiences, uh, my personal investigation, uh, the investigation of my personal experiences through hypnosis um, by Denise Stoner, who mm. did most of that hypnosis work with me. Um, Bud Hopkins also hypnotized me, um, James Harder, oh, wow. and another hypnotist from the state of New Hampshire um, years ago. So uh, I wrote about that, about a little bit about my work, but also about a major experiment that a group of researchers and I cooperated on with what was allegedly a council of extraterrestrials and the messages that they were um, giving us through uh, Kevin Briggs, who is a former police officer in the UK. His wife worked at a college, um, had a position, a ranking position in uh, the psychology department. Mm. And uh, we were invited to determine whether or not this was real. And so we were permitted to use scientific equipment uh, in order to determine whether or not this was his imagination or if something was really happening here. Um, the the, the uh, alleged extraterrestrials, we couldn't see them. Mm. Sometimes we saw shadows of them. We could always feel their presence through a strong tingling sensation in our bodies, um, sort of a, a little bit of an uh, alteration, I think, in our consciousness. Um, and Kevin uh, became very, very hot, the environment around him, regardless of whether he was at his house, at my house. Uh, wow. It was always the same there was up to a 10 degree increase in the environment around Kevin. Wow, that is when incredible. It was. It was. So I think uh, we had evidence that convinced us that this was more than his imagination. Definitely. Uh, there was so much uh, yeah. going on there. Well, and also... Uh, we attempted to determine if these were actually extraterrestrials or only some uh, entities, uh, maybe ghosts who were having fun with us. Sure. And so that was a challenge. So what did they do? They showed us orbs. They showed us lights in the sky that were fairly close and unusual, unusual flight patterns. Wow. Um, and they communicated with us telepathically, which was uh, very, very strange. And, and when, what kind of telepathic messages did you receive during this work, Kathleen? Uh, personally, I uh, had the beginning of the telepathic message was after uh, what he called himself a Zeta scientist. Uh, said that I had a keen scientific mind and he wanted to communicate with me. And so out of the blue, 
the following day, my husband and I were riding in his truck. Uh, and all of a sudden, I felt this extremely intense tingling sensation in my body, almost like electrical tingling, mm. and in my uh, crown chakra, especially. And then uh, I did not hear a voice but I was very conscious that something was coming in and it was not me. Oh. And uh, I, so I had the be ability to ask some questions. I asked, are you really an ET or are you just a dead person? Mm. And he said, I am what you call an extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial to you, but not to myself. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know what that means. Really. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, because uh, the work of Dr. Michael Masters specifically comes to mind, uh, especially whenever you're talking about not – not being extraterrestrial, but being terrestrial from an adjunct, uh, either timeline or a future timeline or something like that. Um, now let's, let's hop back in the conversation just a minute and, and get, get into the idea because this is, this is very similar to once again, uh, CE5. And, yes. and the idea of being able to have constant contact. Uh, now, going back in the conversation to when you were saying your aunt took place in experiments doing the same kind of thing and that during some of the was it during these experiments that you and your mother had your experiences? We had that one. And yes, it was during an experience in which a craft came in, landed on my grandparents' farm, and uh, left physical trace evidence on the ground, wow. which was investigated by a UFO investigator. My mother and I did not state that we had memories of being taken to craft. What I later discovered is that they were very interested in measuring the level of toxicity in my body. They Ooh. told me they had to take tissue samples for that reason. And it didn't make sense at the time. But I discovered that I grew up oh, probably a half mile away um, downhill from what became a Superfund site. It was a chemical waste dump. Oh, wow. Also, I was uh, within 20 miles of Pease Air Force Base, which was a nuclear base. Yep. So I think that these ETs had con some concerns about toxicity well, that in was, the human body. That was also the day and age of uh, regular nuclear testing, both both on ground, above ground in the air as well as underground testing like there are there are numerous studies showing strontium 90 and milk and and all kinds of concentrations so yeah to think that you know you're you're literally from the from 
the duck and cover generation. You know, absolutely, like, I remember like that, that like that would cover. like that would help at all. Um, in school, <laughs> having to roll up into a little ball, yeah. into a fetal position, it, holding your arms yeah, over yeah. your head, and it wasn't going to help anyway. <laughs> we if they bomb yeah. us with a nuke, yeah. Um, but oh. But, uh, yes. but yeah, so I, you know, there there was regular contamination of the skies, things like that. So uh, the fact that they were interested in that and in studying the contamination of your body uh, is is interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I find it extraordinarily interesting that they they are concerned about toxicity and levels of toxicity in the human body as a result of what we have done to the environment. Mm. Well, and, uh, you know, once again, going right to the work of Dr. Masters, that is a lot of what he is hypothesizing is if you extrapolate out the, the general uh, just physiological evolution of humanity from, you know, what we were in Neanderthal to now and extrapolate that out by a few 10,000 years. Yeah. We would probably look awfully gray, you know? Um, and it would make a whole lot more sense for one of them to be coming back to figure out and backtrace what we did to our environment, uh, and how, how we can fix that, you know, um, then Absolutely. You know, my, my Aunt Betty uh, always suspected that they were from the future, mm. that even though she was shown a star map and yeah. it was identified as the Zeta Reticuli star system and other stars uh, that uh, we believe have uh, could have planets mm. that are in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. Um, she wondered if they might be uh, somehow related to us and that this was a change that they underwent uh, as the human body developed. I, no, I have no idea. I can't speculate sure. on that. Uh, I only find it extraordinarily interesting that they uh, are very concerned about this. And during these sessions, if when you read either of my books, the first one, which is more of my spiritual journey, the second one, which is more of my academic and work uh, journey, you will find the questions that we asked this council of eight extraterrestrials. We only spoke to four of them. But uh, it was they call themselves a council of eight. And uh, we were permitted to meet once a month and to take our questions and have them answered. And uh, they had some incredibly enlightening answers. They taught us about uh, the different dimensions. They told us that they live in a different dimension than we do. And now I've learned that when we move out into space, the further we go, the higher the dimension. So it makes sense scientifically. Yeah. Uh, so I find that fascinating. They said that 
they uh, were very concerned about us when they realized that we had developed to the point where we could destroy ourselves. They said that we have done that in the distant past, and they don't want it to happen again. So they said they're here. They're not going to invade. They do this very, very quietly, but they are attempting to spread their message around the world in order to save us. They're also collecting our DNA in case we don't. Interesting. <laughs> in, in case they can't save us and we uh, they end up having to reseed our planet after it recovers, I suppose. So, now, uh, with that in mind, with that in mind, I guess it, the question would bear, uh, are we integral to the actions of the cosmos and, and so integral that our DNA must be saved to be resurrected? Because uh, that, that that's that's interesting uh, to know that they would be collecting our DNA to resurrect us. Should we do that to ourselves again? Well, they didn't answer that question. We okay. didn't ask that question. It's a, a very good question. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But apparently we are important to them. They said they planted our seed here. Wow. Wow. So I wonder if they were part of that first civilization that lived here and uh, had to move on. Those who actually had the technology, probably the rich ones, they, I know they yeah. said that uh, a few uh, survived here, that, but they had the technology in order to leave and they did leave and they said that they went to uh, a star system it was a binary star system zeta reticuli is a binary star system but yeah. there are closer star systems yes. as well yeah. uh, so uh, that's some of the information the different members have said that they were from various star systems but they work together and they travel on craft. They live on craft most of the time now. Um, it's, kind of, it's, it's pretty interesting. I noticed what I thought were some, uh, some conflicts in the information that they give, uh, that sure. they gave us. Uh, perhaps I simply didn't understand it well enough and uh, didn't go back to elaborate. But the information was fascinating. Um, the information about the dimensions, about consciousness. Yeah, yeah, that is, and and a remarkable opportunity, uh, channeling, not channeling, what have you, to to be able to connect in that way with something from beyond. Um, and and you know uh, that. That is a big question in a lot of communities, Kathleen, is is the idea. And I, I even when it comes to CE5, um, I've got the app. I have yet to go to a CE5 event, um, but I, I I have some caveats with CE5 and with some of the protocols. And and I, I guess to me, some of it, some of it rings a little spiritualistic. 
you know, almost almost Ouija board esque. And 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 I guess I'm concerned about that in all honesty, spirituality wise, you know, um, I mean, geez, the the nice little girl in The Exorcist was just playing a game with a Ouija board when something very malevolent guised itself in the some in the guise of something very nice to get well, access. You know, yes. And anyone who participates in anything like this needs protection, spiritual protection. Thank you. Thank you. And we always had an ordained minister, mm, Dr. Melanie good. Barton Bragg, who uh, gave us that spiritual protection uh, before we had any uh, meeting. Good. And, and, and uh, you know, that is that is a, always a caveat with me. Once again, yes. um, I, it, the better safe than sorry. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken with experiencers who uh, had never had this happen in the family, had never had it happen when they were younger, but mm. they just really wanted to have contact with an ET. Yeah. And you probably know what I'm going to say, but they ended up with something negative. Well, well, and and that is just it. And that's something that I think a lot of people, whether in you've been on the show before, Kathleen, I love talking about all kinds of topics, but more than anything, I enjoy demystifying things for people and and making it to where, you know, people go into any kind of research with not only an open mind and an open heart, but an educated mind and an educated heart. Mm -hmm. And and to go into any of this, whether you're walking around a building with an EMF detector or or whatnot, um, if you are going out with a specified intent of connection, you need to be careful um, because there's a lot of other things that are perfectly willing to connect with you and use the trope that's in your mind that you would be comfortable with for that realm of, yes, acceptance you know, uh, with air quotes high in the air there, the idea that this is what you would accept as an experience. So I will use that as a hijacking wavelength, um, so to speak. And to, to even hear the fact that within this work, uh, y'all took that protocol within consideration, uh, is huge to me. It's fantastic because it, it does draw a very clear delineation as to what you were trying to do. Um, and, and not, not trying to confuse the information with something else. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we were never able to answer our question. Are you actually extraterrestrials mm. who have come here from other star systems? We couldn't get the, the confirmatory evidence of that. Yeah. We wanted them to show us a craft up close. We wanted them to materialize in front of us, and they didn't. But we did see uh, them in a couple of them in shadow a little bit. Okay. So, I mean, but we always had a sense that they were very kind, gentle positive. We always kept ourselves in a high vibration 
I mean, you never drink when you're doing yeah, something yeah. like this. You never consume alcohol, for one thing, because it lowers your vibration. You don't want to do anything that is a central nervous system depressant because it lowers that vibrational frequency. And and my book talks all about vibrational frequency and and uh, what you need to know about that. So, uh, well. Let's, I think let's, we covered a lot of ground in the experiment that I worked on that uh, is in this like book. It. it sounds like it. And, uh, you know, to, to carry on with frequency a little bit more, Kathleen, that uh, one of the one of the concepts I've been talking about a lot, especially since MUFON Symposium this last year, is the idea that experiencers, um, specifically experiencer families like yourself, uh it's almost it's almost akin to a, a watch being in the presence of a magnet. Uh, that watch will never be the same watch it was before it was in the presence of the magnet. That that magnetic field will always be resonant there with the watch, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting how experiencers are drawn to other experiences uh, it's interesting to me how experiencers suddenly start having experiences of other natures um, and even how experiences much like your own and your mother's and other family members run within familial bloodlines mm-hmm. and and how these vibrations are carried on al- almost in an epigenetic way. You know, the same way that um, there there was a huge study, which I think may complement your work, Kathleen, that was recently done on uh, the children of Vietnam vets and oh, how and how PTSD is epigenetically passed on. How how traumas are epigenetically passed on through generations. So the idea that. An abduction experience, something, something that is so jarring, uh, not only vibrationally, but physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything is rocked by that. To think that that moment of stasis in time wouldn't be passed on is, is silly to me. Um, if, if, something like the trauma of war can be passed on, then yes, absolutely. I would tend to believe that that traumatic event that that you experienced would be able to be passed on as well. Well, I know that, uh, well, I've done, I have read studies uh, on uh, people who have had post-traumatic stress disorder and how it can be passed on to other close family members uh, as a result of seeing this, and I believe that that was passed on to me, a certain level of trauma because of what happened to Betty and Barney, and that it was amplified when I was taken, when my mother was taken as well. And, uh, you know, it, it took a lot of work to work through that trauma. Uh, so even if these ETs were... Uh, benevolent in a sense it was like you know you take your child to 
the family physician uh, to get your vaccines and the family physician is someone that you are perceiving as being malevolent because he's hurting you. Yeah, that's what's happened. Uh, Mm. I don't I try to look more objectively at all of this at this point in my life. Sure. But yes, and I think that it was probably passed on that that uh, sense of trauma to my children, to other members of the family as well. Sure. Sure. And uh, you know, with your experience because so so many experiencers especially uh folks like Sev talk um come to understand their experience in a 180 degree different aspect as time goes on. Um, you, you describe your experience as extremely traumatic. I, you do not need to go into any details if you do not wish to. Um, we are always an open forum for such things, but how, how has your experience changed not only as your life has progressed, but how has your experience of your experience changed, Kathleen? I came to a point in my life where I had to make a decision. And that decision was, if I was going to live my life as a victim of this, or if I was going to overcome victimization and become a survivor, And I made the decision that I was going to be a survivor, that I was going to develop techniques through the use of hypnosis, self-hypnosis, in order to overcome uh, this uh, traumatic experience. And I did that. And then I learned, I experimented. I learned that when I was awake, when I was taken, If I projected love in their direction, then I was treated better, that they projected love back to me. Now, you know, people might argue that they were lying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they were lying to me. It made me feel better. It helped me to overcome the level of fear that I had And eventually, my experiences just ended. When I started to work with the Council of Eight on on that experiment, they said they would protect me. And I was never taken by the Greys again. Wow. Now, up until that point, Kathleen, how how many experiences of being taken had you, how many do you consciously remember having? during your lifetime up to that point? You know, <laughs> I, I would have to count. I've never talked about how many I've actually had. I mean, maybe 10. I, wow. I just don't know. Wow. I just don't know. Um, you know, it was more frequent when I was uh, in my late 20s, I think, and then um, sort of slipped off over the years to maybe once a year and then uh, once every five years, that sort of thing. I, I've never really worked that out. I did work out at one point 
the number of days between visits. And I was attempting to capture it on video. Um, I was okay. all prepared, but the camera shut down. Oh. <laughs> and it remained shut down for more than two hours. Oh, man. <laughs> Back on again. <laughs> That that's that's weird enough in and of itself, Kathleen. Um, now, moving moving forward, knowing that as as you proceeded in this work and especially with your work with the Council of Eight, that these visitations that you had ceased um, a lot of your work, especially uh, since the first Forbidden Knowledge volume came out has been based much more on the the spiritual connection of the experiencer um do you think that, that uh, were were you extraordinarily spiritually founded in in your mid early 20s you know when when these experiences were at their peak so to speak um i was uh, a christian Okay. Um, I was raised uh, half Catholic and half <laughs> my mother was more and less agnostic, you know, but I, I did go to church. Okay. I uh, taught in a parochial school. OK, you know, and I did social work with the families as well. So, uh, yes, I was I was uh, grounded in traditional religion. Okay. And uh, one of the studies that I worked on through the Mutual UFO Network, through the ERT, when I was director, I was the director of that team for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm still with the team, but as a consultant and on the executive committee now. But uh, to get back to the question, uh, my, our study showed that experiencers uh, became more spiritually oriented. And there was an academic study done by Kenneth Ring and Christopher Rosing. And their study, there were two studies actually, and they indicated that experiencers of ET contact become more spiritual. There are other uh, characteristics that we share, changes mm. that, that occur. But I found that uh, very interesting. And I think that uh, I have grown spiritually as a result of uh, my experiment. Well, it wasn't my experiment, but an yeah. experiment that I taught part in with other researchers um, on the Council of Eight, as I learned more about consciousness, spirituality, and dimensions. Yeah. There was a lot of science in this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 that that's kind of what I was getting at, Kathleen, is the fact that like uh, even even through the science and everything else it it expanded your world of spirituality along the way. I mean, even even to the point that it is it's basically the basis of your work now is is that spiritual connection and i mean i i took part in the the martin barton survey on religious belief and extraterrestrial life i encourage all of my listeners to go out and do the same thing you can find that at survey monkey folks uh you can also find a link right there at kathleen's website uh you can go and 
take the survey. Um, because it is through surveys like that and, and through the work that you're doing, Kathleen, in this that, that we find these common connections, you know, and, and that I'm, I'm a huge proponent of spirituality over religion. Don't get me wrong. I've raised as a cradle Catholic, spent a year as a Catholic seminarian, many years after as assistant youth minister, taught CCE, things like that. Um, but I, when it comes down to it, it's the fact of, spirituality is is what we carry through with us day to day that yes, is it's I a mean, way of living yeah yeah and i really, believe that that jesus and that um, many of the other prophets were teaching spirituality absolutely. a way of life not yeah. going to church on sunday yeah, to jesus was not a catholic what you did during the week yeah but to live a life um, sort of, if you're a Christian, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Well, and, uh, you know, just honestly be, being a good human being. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 you know, all religions are important. That's right. As long as you live those religions yeah. on a day-to-day basis. Now, when it, when it comes to the messages from the Council of Eight, um, as as we wrap up here in the last 10 minutes or so of this, uh, of course, a lot of their message was, you know, don't don't destroy yourselves again. Um, please don't do that. Um, we're here if you do. Uh, but what what did they have to say about the overall direction of humanity? Uh, what did they have to say about the overall spiritual connection? of humanity, Kathleen, and what we should look out for there? Well, essentially what they said is that our technological progress is out of sync with our spiritual development. And right. when there is this imbalance, they have seen this on other planets, and it could lead to what they, the words they used was the disintegration of life on that planet. And they don't want that to happen. They're attempting to raise, to increase spirituality. They want to see us develop technologically, too. They uh, have offered to help, but the help would have to be agreed upon by world governments. So, um, you know, that's the information I received. Take it or leave it. Well, and, you know, it's it's always interesting to me. Uh, I I have had my moments of true uh, what I know to be true divine revelation in my life, Kathleen. I have I have never um, I've I've experienced one what true, true UFO do not know what it was. It wasn't a craft that I could tell. It was just an amorphous object flying through the air. Really strange. Um Aside from that, I, I have had quite a few paranormal experiences and a few, like I said, what I consider to be moments of true divinity and divine connection in my life. Though Those are the reasons I have these conversations. Those are the reasons why I will forever believe the experiencer until proven otherwise, 
Kathleen. There, I, I can give zero, a, a, a zero bigger than my head amount of proof or evidence to the fact that I, I was in the presence of God in my church in front of 300 people. I, I can give zero evidentiary fact to that other than my actual experience mm-hmm. that day. Um, but it's a moment that changed my life that will forever change my life that I will for never ever forget. And despite the presence of any building or other people in the world, I know what the connection to my divine feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what these experiences do for people. Uh, it is, it is a unique experience when it happens, even, even when it happens with other people, you know, and it's, it's, it's sad to me sometimes how, how families do not talk about it, Kathleen, how friends do not talk about it, uh, to the point of, you know, good, good folks like Terry Lovelace and, and his friend who, they just lost connection and never talked again. You know, even, even knowing you and your mother had experiences, but it was never talk about this. We won't even talk about it amongst each other. Right. Until later on in my sure. life. Yeah. When we did talk about it and we had this conversation of, do you remember this? And do you remember this? And we did independently remember the same experience wow wow and and that is that is incredible to know that um i mean you you are sitting and living proof of the fact that these things follow familial lines uh that experiences follow familial lines it is it is so interesting to me uh, the way that they do, and the more I am exposed to it, the it's it's odd, but the less in awe I am by it, uh, and and the more I have just accepted the fact that oh yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, and uh, but before we let you go, what what advice do you have for the experiencer, Kathleen, for those who are um, either taken aboard? with entities for those who have had a telepathic connection with entities for those um, who've had marks laid upon them, like our mutual friend Sev talk. What advice do you have for people who are experiencers of these things? Well, I'd like to say that my book, extraterrestrial contact, what to do when you've been abducted, has been called the best book ever written on that topic. 100%. 100%. And uh, it is full of information, but I think that it's extraordinarily important to work through your experiences, through what has happened to you, um, because uh, how can you be a fully functioning human being if you're walking around in a state of trauma. Uh, It's like having a weight lifted from your shoulder. Uh, And and that happened to me. Get yourself into a good support group 
with other experiencers who are having similar experiences where you can speak confidentially with these other experiencers and, and get the help you need. I don't know if it's necessary to have hypnosis, but a hypnosis that is therapeutic hypnosis or um, yeah. even EMDR therapy uh, is important uh, to resolve the emotional trauma. Yeah. Even if the experience was positive in the end, you might feel traumatized after it occurred because there's been so much negative press. Well, uh, well, despite of its positivity, it's still forced upon you. Yes. It's still forced upon you. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. No one asked me if I wanted to be taken when I was 17 years old. Yeah. And, and subsequently. Yes. And subsequently, you know, and, and that's just it. And that, you know, there, there has been a huge and beautiful conversation opened over the last few years, Kathleen, um, since hearings started and all kinds of things. And it's, it's, amazing and awesome to see the support networks that have opened up uh the things like the ERT which you helped spearhead the creation of it's it's absolutely beautiful and it's great you know and to know that for decades um there there was almost nothing in that right if if you went to a therapist um you may have been heavily medicated or something like that as opposed to actively be open-heartedly listened to so uh it is work from people like you that has opened these conversations uh thank you so much for your decades decades of tireless work in in the world of helping experiencers and researching these topics well as an experiencer myself and from a family of experiencers i thought that it was extraordinarily important to provide a format where individuals could overcome what has occurred and to gain a deeper understanding of what is occurring in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Ab- you. Absolutely. Anytime. My my audience is always your audience. You are always welcome on my airwaves, Kathleen. Before we let you go, let everybody know where they can go to get the latest edition uh, part two of Forbidden Knowledge. Um, since we've been on air, I have ordered my copy. So oh, it's, you. it's in route right now, um, for the library, but let everybody know where they can go to keep up with all of your work, where they can go to, uh, take the Martin Barton survey on religious belief and extraterrestrial life. Uh, let them know where they can go to find everything Kathleen Martin. Well, the best way to get there and uh, that has the most comprehensive information is at Kathleen-Marden.com, my website. Uh, My books are also available. Uh, All of them are available on Amazon, and uh, most of them are available on Barnes & Noble as well. Awesome. So Awesome. Well... Thank you so much for your time, as always, Kathleen. It is always great to chat with you. Please do hold the line while we close things out with the audience. 
Uh, Thank you. Absolutely. While you are online checking out all of the amazing work of Kathleen Barden over at Kathleen-Marden.com, everybody, make sure to stop on by Curious Realm. CuriousRealm.com is where you can like, follow, subscribe, share, comment. That's where you can find all of our episodes. That's where you can also visit our bookstore and buy all of the books from our guests. Uh, also, make sure if you've got a Roku device, stop on by the Roku shop, folks. Get your all-new Curious Realm channel. That's right. We now have our own app on Roku, which includes tons of binaural beat therapy music, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so stop on by. Check that out if you're a Roku user. Download the Curious Realm app. Thank you so much, as always, everybody, for tuning in. It is your open hearts, your open minds that makes the conversation possible. And without the conversation, we do not march forward as humanity. So remember, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Curious Realm. Stay tuned for more guests, forbidden topics, and hidden truths. Follow us on social media by searching Curious Realm. To download the official Curious Realm app and view the Knowledge Vault or become a sponsor of Curious Realm, visit our website at CuriousRealm.com. Curious Realm is available on your favorite podcast and video services, as well as KPNL Radio, APR TV, and the Curious Realm app for Roku devices. Curious Realm is a proud member of the Ground Zero Media and Aftermath Media family of podcasts. For more great shows and members-only content, visit groundzeromedia.org and aftermathmedia.com today. Thanks for listening. Stay curious. And remember, the other side is always watching.